You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Niels Castellarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended for you to learn and grow as rules-based investors. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the catalog. Uh, and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Rob, where we discussed small aspects of working with investment strategies that potentially do well when crises occur, before answering lots of questions from our community. So if you haven't listened to that one, I encourage you to go and check that out. Jerry, always great to be back with you. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Great. Thanks for having me, Niels. It's good to see you. Good to be back. I listened to all the podcasts you do multiple times, tweet them, use them for my own benefit, but I really do enjoy them, but it's always good to be back. And I am traveling today and I'm in New York City, so I've uh, been a lot of fun up here. It's New York is back, but I think we may get some snow today, so that's that could be fun. Okay, cool. Well, I appreciate uh, all of that, and um, yeah, let's jump into it. So I'm going to try and do a market wrap, but it's going to be from a kind of a 30,000 feet uh, level, because I think some of the topics that uh, that I'm going to touch on we'll probably dig into a little bit more in detail. And, uh, you know, there are quite a lot of things going on, as everybody's aware of. Um, but if we try and distill it a bit, on one hand, we have the market reactions to the tragic events taking place right now in Ukraine. And on the other hand, we have the massive change in interest rate policy by central banks due to surging inflation. In some markets, actually, both of these forces are clear to be seen, and that has led to some explosive price action. If we look at some of these explosive market moves, we see uh, this play out mostly in the commodity markets. From a big picture point of view, so far in March, we've had the biggest update in the CRB index on March uh, 1st since. 2009. And on March 9th, we had the biggest down day since 2008. That says a lot about how much volatility we're witnessing at the moment. And within the commodity sector, the massive moves are concentrated within energies, base metals, grains, which of course are directly linked to the war in Ukraine. And the impact is along with the sanctions and disruption to supply chains is having. But if you think that it's only crops grown in the Ukraine and Russia that are being affected, think again, because the soaring prices and lack of supply of fertilizer will also have a huge effect on farming in other parts of the world. For now, I'm just going to stick with the big picture, as I think Jerry and I will discuss some of these markets moves in a few minutes. With regards to inflation and inflation expectations, I think we're yet to see the full effect uh, of this in the price of bonds and potentially equity markets as they have, to some extent, remained reasonably well-behaved so far. But with inflation in the U.S. coming in at 5.4%, if you look at the Michigan survey of inflation in the next year that was released Friday, or if you look at the quote-unquote flexible price measure of inflation, which includes only the most volatile components of CPI, 
and showed a year-on-year jump of 20% in the latest reading, double the level of the 1970s during the Volcker era, I think it's clear for all of us to see now that this could end up being a serious problem for the world economy. Oh, and let me just mention that over here in Europe, the Italian producer prices went up by 41.8% year-on-year in the latest reading. And natural gas prices, by the way, they're 13 times more expensive than in the US. It's hard to reconcile with the European bond prices being where they are right now. From a volatility perspective on US equities, as measured by the VIX, It's a bit weird that we're not seeing stronger reaction in terms of increased uncertainty and appetite for buying protection. In fact, the peak in the VIX uh, of about 37.5, which we reached on Tuesday, is about the same as we saw during the GameStop saga in January 2021. And if you ask me, the situation today is a bit more uncertain compared to speculation in a few meme stocks. But I guess it shows how you cannot predict how the markets are going to behave in the future. I want to bring you in, Jerry, and just ask you a little bit about what you are uh, paying attention to. It's been a few weeks, of course. We know there's a lot of things going on, but you may be focusing on other things, of course, uh, compared to um, what I'm looking at. So what's what's happening from, from your point of view? Well, every day is just, you know, very volatile and a lot of movement. Sometimes it's good for us. Sometimes it's not good. I've been riding the wheat bandwagon for a long time with a lot of wheat on, and those moves are just outsized and something I've never seen before. I think uh, I think crude was down twelve dollars one day. I don't think I've ever seen that. Uh, so it's good to be long and have the right positions. Uh, I actually was short the ruble, and I was also short the Russian stock index. So I was, I've had some good positions and made some money, but the volatility is tough every day to wake up and just grab, hold on to something and say, what's, what's it going to be like today? Because even though I'm long-term and I extol the virtues of trading long-term and letting profits run, I don't like giving back profits. But so it's, it's not, uh, sometimes, you know, we talk about losing, losing trades and how difficult they can be. I remember being told in 1983 that profits can be destabilizing. So I feel pretty destabilized these days. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people uh, feel that way as well. I think in terms of overall trend-following performance, if we just look at the last week or so, I mean, I think mostly uh, it's a continuation, even though, as Jerry, you mentioned, there's been a lot of volatility. Overall, I think it's a a continuation of what we've seen the last couple of months with a slightly different leadership this week. Energies and base metals saw some huge corrections midweek, which we'll come back to. And I think that... Um, you know, that would have led to some losses amongst trend followers in general, and grains also corrected a bit. But on the other hand, short positions and fixed income came, came back in vogue this week. And for those who are perhaps now short slightly in some of the equities, certainly the Asian equities most likely, um, that may have been okay this week. Uh, and of course, then you have the, the dollar positions, the long dollar buyers, I would imagine most trend followers are having, uh, has also been productive, uh, I would say. So a small positive uh, for most trend followers maybe this week, um, maybe for some a bigger one if if they had exactly the right positions. Um, so um, yeah, so there we have it. Um, we have 
quite a few questions also this week, which is fantastic. We appreciate that. You brought along some uh, great topics, some some old classics that needs to be dusted off after a period like this, which we which we're going to do. Um, but before we get to the questions from Josh, uh, William, and and Abe. And also Funny Money actually sent in a question. I don't know his real name, but he calls himself Funny Money. I, I wanted to ask you about something that I do think is quite important. And frankly, uh, RCM Alternatives did a really good write-up on this particular point this week, uh, which I caught up on as well. But it is, for those who may not have noticed it, but it, there was a big, big debacle in the nickel market midweek. Um, and, and that trades on the London Metals Exchange. And um, we don't trade nickel on our side, so so I don't have any direct uh, experience. I've only gone with what I've read and heard, uh, but I know you do. Um, so tell me from your perspective what you think uh, or what, what you know and what happened, so to speak. And also, I think it's a good idea maybe to explain a little bit about kind of what mechanisms kicks in when you have a situation like this and just to frame it a little bit my understanding, and that's purely from reading the headlines in the news, it starts out with a Chinese tycoon, as it's uh, explained, uh, who was not able to meet margin on a big short position in nickel uh, in the amounts of about two billion or so. I no idea if these numbers are right or not. Um, but anyway, I'm going to leave it with you, Jerry, in your safe hands to explain a little bit about what went on this week in nickel. Well, unfortunately, I know what you know, which is the headlines, I do know that people are very upset. And uh, I think AQR, Cliff Asnes, has tweeted a lot about this. He's very upset. So maybe AQR is long, as am I. And there will be lawsuits or there will be some sort of uh, just justified conclusion to all of this. But it does sound like what you just said is that uh, they're protecting one individual from a margin call. And how, can you explain how they did that? Because this is the unusual part. Oh, I I read that there were thousands of trades that were done that they said, uh, okay, we're not going to honor those trades. Uh, I think, is, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, no, exactly. So so what happened is, again, my understanding is just that they simply, because the price went from something like 20,000 to 100,000 uh, in no time, which we obviously have seen in, in, in equities, uh, they can go up by three, 400% uh, in a day if, if you catch someone out uh, in a short squeeze back to the GameStop saga a few months ago. But in this case, Apparently, uh, there was a Chinese person on on the other side, and and that ended up having massive losses, unrealized losses, and couldn't meet the margin, and that obviously created a a, a major short squeeze. Now, the issue is, I think, is that obviously someone like yourself and 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 maybe AQR and others, uh, trend followers who trade nickel would have been long for sure, and if they wanted to you know, adjust their position size uh, if they wanted to, and I dare say, I dare say the word volatility, adjust their position size. They couldn't do it because, or they may have done it thinking, oh, we great, we did well. But what the exchange came out and, and did was they basically canceled a lot of trades above a certain price. And that is massive market manipulation, which we can't encourage in any way, shape or form. And you mentioned to me before we started recording that, there may have been similar situations before, or did I mishear that? Uh, is that something they've done before? Yeah, yeah. I've traded the LME for 
uh, since the 90s. So I, I feel like there has been situations historically where maybe I didn't even have a position, so I wasn't following it as closely. But this is not surprising. The LME has its own rules, and they are criticized frequently for their rules. They don't change. And I think you know this, but the LME is owned by a Chinese company. No, I did not own that. Yeah. So, and this is recent over the past few years, and this is back to giving me, uh, me giving you justifiable praise of a few weeks ago with Rich uh, talking about ESG and the G part and the China part. And so we're back to another little mini scandal with uh, China involved and how important it is. Um, because, you know, many times over the years, we've both talked about liquid markets, mark to market, exchange traded, and talked about how wonderful this is for CTAs and for their CTAs clients. And now we're caught in a situation uh, where a liquid market, a reputable market, a market that's been around for hundreds of years, I think, is not being responsible. So why aren't aluminum, nickel, lead, zinc, and tin traded in the US or in Europe on the COMEX or EUREX? And so maybe this will be a move towards that because we need to do something about the shenanigans that are allowed to happen with this uh, rogue exchange. I'm not going to blame the Chinese for it, but because I think uh, some of these things occurred, obviously, before they, uh, the Chinese company was involved. Yeah. Okay. I mean, very super interesting. I did not know all of that. Uh, and of course, generally speaking, there are lots of steps that an exchange uh, has to take when it comes to securing uh, the solvency of of uh, of 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 all the uh, not dissolvency them necessarily, uh, but but just the guarantee of these trades. I mean, this is one thing that we say uh, that we love about futures is your your counterpart is the exchange. But if the exchange is doing things like this, then you have to question uh, how great that is. But generally speaking, there are different lines of uh, of defense, so to speak, that exchanges would take. And, and also how the members will have to put up money if there is a situation where a client simply can't meet the margin to make sure that all the other people who are trading on the exchange are actually kept whole and that those lines of defense normally does not include just canceling trades. Uh, now it seems it does when it comes to the LME and that's a huge new development. Now, maybe you know this, Jerry, I don't. Um, how many of the base metals uh, other than copper are actually already traded on U.S. exchanges? Do you know? Um, I think it's zero. I think okay. there is an aluminum contract in the COMEX. There was, okay. Okay. but it never got traction. Right. And so uh, to, to your point, if, if we... If we want to see a change, well, then actually it's the it's the investors, it's the people who trade on the exchanges that have to vote with their feet to make it interesting enough for people like CME Group and other people to actually launch these contracts um, and, and so on and so forth. Let's jump into the question. We have lots of questions. Some of them um, we can answer, most of them, I hope. Some of them... Probably not, and I'll and you probably can guess uh, why when I read you some of the questions we had in. Uh, let me start out with uh, questions that came in from the states uh, from Josh. Um, there's quite a few of them. Some we um, it probably won't take that long, so it sounds like a lot, but I think we can do uh, we could do fine. And the first question is: When looking for entry signals for longs or shorts, 
what precise number of days do you use or a fair range? And let me just preface this because there's a little bit of this in all of your, in some of your questions, at least, Josh. And that is, I think it's great to write in and ask us for uh, for your for feedback and ideas and and so on and so forth. But I hope you weren't expecting that we we're going to tell you exactly which look back periods we're using in our trend following because that is kind of giving away the secret sauce that we've been spending 30 years ago. And by the way, let me preface also the answers a little bit. And that is, Josh, even if we did, let's just say we would actually give you the precise entries and exits that we're using that's not going to teach you anything. That's just going to give you an answer, right? It's not going to force you to go and do the research that you need to do in order to understand fully trend following and in order to go in and change your model in the future when it's required to do so, to fully understand what you're doing. So, you know, it's also why I think most of us are very skeptical about any system you can buy on the internet that sounds like a great idea. No, no, no. If you want to be a DIY trend follower, which of course we we love and respect people who want to do that, you need to do the work. You need to do the research. You need to do the back test to understand and appreciate what's going on in the engine room. If you want the done for you kind of uh, trend following then you invest with Jerry, then you invest with Don or any of the other firms that we know and, and we respect. So those are the so those are the so let me turn it over to Jerry first, but just so you know, don't expect precise answers to this to a question like this. Oh, very good question. I I wanted to talk about this. So um I'm glad this was brought up. Um so I'm skeptical of all things, Niels, uh, your systems, my systems, especially my systems. I'm kind of skeptical. I don't take it all very seriously, like there is uh, the perfect answer. I trade a range of breakouts. So by definition, I'm not not even trying to find one. Uh, I like Richard's approach uh, a lot, and I learned a lot from him over the past year or so. And his approach is like a, a long-term breakout, like the 200-day high. And uh, he wants that uh, on the entry side, his idea is to make, uh, to trade less frequently. And I think that really is one of the uh, good ideas. Uh, I was going to say something like, overall, it's hard for me to separate the entries and exits because they're kind of a pair, they go together. But I like these systems that trade about once a year. So they'll have a round turn trade, a buy and a sell once a year on average. And so that's pretty long term. And if you're buying the 200-day breakout and then using multiple uh, exits, 100-day low, 120-day low, 150-day low, I don't know, something like that, then I think um, those are the type of uh, time frames that I like to look at. And according to Richard's philosophy, 90% of these trends are endogenous. So go back and uh, listen to that podcast and learn what that means. And uh, th these trends play out over a long period of time. So no wonder uh, when you do the back test, these uh, longer term systems that stay in the market on average um, about a year, and some of the long term trends, two or three years, these come back in the back test as uh, superior uh uh, money makers and compound uh, compound your money at high rates. A very good example of what you just said is what's going on right now, because a lot of people think they hear about trend followers uh, making 
you know, having a profitable start to the year because of trends in energies, because of trends in grains, because of trends in metals. But actually, those positions were taken on months ago. We we had no idea. There were even no troops around Ukraine when we got long these uh, markets. So I think that is a really important point for people to understand. And I completely concur with you that long-term trend following over and over and over, the evidence suggests that that is more profitable, maybe not more enjoyable to 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 sit through, but certainly more more profitable in the long run. That's exactly right. And um, so that's some pretty good specific numbers to chew on. You know, um, I like to look at the charts and look at the long-term, some of the, the bigger trends and just see what kind of exit breakout I'm jumping ahead here. Uh, keeps me in the trend. You know, I think the old turtle 20 day low to get out or the 40 day low, that's too short term. Uh, but something in the hundreds, I think, keeps you in these trends, uh, keeps you in wheat. Like wheat's a great example. I like to go and look, how did my system do in something that initially broke out a long time ago, but was very, very choppy? It didn't really make a lot of money. Then all of a sudden, after a year, now wheat's on the front page. And, uh, it's going up a lot, but I've been in it for so long and I was able to withstand that choppiness and not get bounced out. So I think uh, there's different different ways of approaching it, but uh, definitely if you have parameters that keep you in a trade uh, for a year on average, I think you're getting really close to some uh, some good parameters. Yeah, no, exactly. And that that's part of the next question from Josh, which is kind of how we determine these things. And, and as you said, I mean, you like to look at charts initially to see what intuitively makes sense. I think that makes uh, that that's a great way of, of, uh, of approaching it. But but of course, we then go on and we do our, our testing and we 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 actually see whether it's uh it also makes sense from from a numbers point of view once we uh, crunch those and then also uh, you do ask josh uh whether these data points are considered proprietary and i think i answered that already that's kind of part of the secret source is all the research we've done i mean jerry and and the firm i work for i mean we've been doing this for 30 40 years plus so it's there's a lot of time put into this uh in order to get to what what we believe is a better uh, way of doing trend following than when we began doing this. Uh, it's all a learning process and we're still students of trend following. Uh, I can guarantee you that. So I think we've gone through a lot of those questions you had, Josh, on that. Then you have a question, what's the general idea behind some trend following traders using two or more types of programs in their trading? I think, so I can, well, certainly from uh, from our point of view, what I can say is that, yes, we we use two different types of trend following and I guess it just goes to the belief we have is that diversification in general is a good idea, both in terms of markets, in terms of and and using different techniques of trend following, and also different timeframes. It just gives us multiple entries and multiple exit points, so we can basically get in and out of the markets without leaving a footprint. Uh, that's what it's all about. But overall, we end up building exposure, and as Jerry says, that exposure can actually last for years from when we start getting into a market, either long or short, until we finally exit and we turn the position that can be multiple months or years, ideally, even though part of that time is spent being in a range and, and so on and so forth. Um, and of course, Jerry, uh, you can just jump in and add to anything you want. And then you say, where might I find any real 
trend following mutual funds available to a small retail investor. And, and you're in luck here because I think both Jerry and I can speak to uh, one of those each. So I'm going to let you go first, Jerry. Yeah, there's a handful of mutual funds out there. Chesapeake has one. So yeah, I'm a big fan of that for uh, investments and diversifying your portfolio. I trade multiple, back to the other question, I trade multiple uh, trend-following systems, different entry and exit points. So I get a little bit of diversification in doing that. And then I trade a lot of markets. I'm up to 170 now. So I get some diversification there as well, obviously. And then, uh, But I'm lacking on something other than trend-following. As you know, I'm trend-following plus nothing, and I don't really... Uh, add any sort of other strategies that are really good at diversifying the trend following. So I'm pretty much a, just a pure trend follower and pretty happy with that. Yeah, yeah. And on our side, we we sub-advise one mutual fund called the Arrow uh, Managed Futures Fund, which we took over, not from a, the, the inception, if you look at the full track record, that's not ours, but we took it over late 2015, I believe. Um, the, the only thing, and we need to mention that, of course, um, even with, with mutual funds, is, of course, that you, you need to be aware and, and research um, just things like costs and stuff like that, um, especially if there's any loads or anything like that. Uh, I would probably try and find an alternative alternative but there there should be enough out there for uh, for you to uh, consider if, if you're heading down that route let's see here you have another question coming in uh saying how liquid does a market need to be for you to trade it or even watch it and with new markets appearing on any given day what bias do you prefer in watching or trading very new markets or offerings and i think here josh you know, I think we all, as professional uh, managers, I think we all have our rules in terms of liquidity, meaning it could be a certain uh, volume per day. We may also monitor, I'm, I'm sure we do, I'm, or I know we do, but I'm sure Jerry would would, would as well. It's just to see, you know, how big a, a percentage of uh, either open interest or average daily volume uh, would our position represent. Things like that to make sure that we would never have to trade and a point where we would move the market. Or, or anything like that. So there are different ways you can monitor uh, these things. Uh, I think generally speaking, uh, and I think we've said that many times on the podcast, we're predominantly interested in in liquid markets, um, which will prevent us from, from some things. And then other managers have gone the route of maybe adopting um, also the less liquid markets, but then adding many more of them. So they have smaller exposure to each of them. And there's no wrong or right, but you just need to be aware of the different risks that that imposes. And then Jerry, a uh, specific question, the last one from Josh. Um, Jerry, what is your trading approach to the dozens and dozens of equity indices and equity sector and country indices? I uh, have a strategy of I will trend follow ind stock indices short, oh, just on the short side. Uh, Richard has assured me that's okay. And you will get some outlier moves when the vault, uh, when the correlations in stocks go to one sometimes. So I have noticed that in my research as well, that I can break my hard and fast rule based upon the evidence that uh, shorting indices, I think, works a bit better than shorting single equities, uh, single names. Uh, I still only go long single names, so I'm still... Uh, Think that that's a more proper way to handle the 
get the diversification and the possible of the possibility of the outliers in the stock market. I shorted the Russian ETF and I made a lot of money in it. And I got out when it started getting really close to zero, uh, just in time before they stopped trading it. So I did get lucky on that one. So you never know. You've, uh, it's, this is, uh, I, I scour the markets, you know, whether it's indices or whatever. And I really just, I'm on a mission to add crazy markets, markets I've never heard of before. And uh, shorting ETFs is, is something I started doing. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you hit on something and people accuse me, well, you had this incredible talent of finding Tesla, <laughs> Moderna. I'm like, no, I don't because, okay, I, every time I talk about those two, I always say I got lucky because of course I got lucky. But some of these indices and ETFs are staring us in the face. We don't have this exposure in our portfolio. Pull the trigger, put it in, and you'll get rewarded. Uh, and most of my new ideas, the markets I add, they're losers. They don't go anywhere. And all you hear about is the success. But uh, yeah, that's, that's where I spend a lot of my time, not tweaking my parameters, but finding, you know, like what tweak could I have done that's better than be a long wheat, hopefully nickel, crude, all the grains, short. You know, these markets are the heroes. They're the ones that are making this money. Uh, just hit the breakout and hold on and follow your rules. Yeah, no, absolutely. So great news about uh, getting out before they stop trading the uh, Russian ETF. So c congratulations on that. But what about the ruble? Where did you where do you trade that? And is it still trading? Actually, I, I was just curious. Yeah, you know, I trade the ruble, and also something uh, that was similar to the ruble uh, three or four months ago is the Turkish lira. I trade them uh, futures for the ruble. The ruble futures, I guess CME is liquid. Okay. And then uh, cash foreign exchange is where I trade the Turkey. But there's two futures contracts for Turkey as well. Uh, I think I've traded the futures, and, and I've traded the FX. It just depends on liquidity at the time. And uh, these things really crashed and they're still trading. Uh, so I'm not getting out. You know, it's, in, it's just something I thought of now. You, you know, we hear about all of these sanctions and, 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 and all things Russian being sanctioned. And I'm just curious, would the CME have to, or who, whichever exchange is traded on, actually have to stop something like the ruble from being traded if, if we're sanctioning Russia? I'm just curious. That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, this is a brand new world with new rules. And it's great how the world has come together and uh, punished Russia, which I think is a great thing. And I hope it's a great thing. I think it could push a madman even further away from norm norm normalcy. But uh, it's maybe, and this is one of the lessons we learned with COVID, that we could all come together and work together. But hopefully that is not a mistake to isolate this guy in this way, but I don't know to what extent the world is willing to take all the possible measures it could. Uh, so we'll, well see. Not to, not to make this a political podcast as such, um, there are plenty of those, um, and maybe for another day, um, because it's not that it's uninteresting uh, at all. Um, but I do find some of these things that's happening still quite confusing right on one hand we we see all these uh, people especially from the european union coming out and basically saying you know we should stop 
everything for uh, with with Russia, and we should crumple uh, their economy. Yet we continue. Uh, importing all their gas and their oil. It's only the U.S. who have stopped importing or have said they're going to stop importing the oil. Uh, And I learned this morning that, and of course, people like uh, Macron, who I think is the president of the EU at the moment, has come out and been very vocal about this. But then I learned this morning that the French car maker Renault, which um, has a 30% market share in Russia, interestingly enough, they're not going to stop. As the only global car maker, they're not going to stop their production in Russia and guess who owns the majority of the stock of the shares in Renault? The French state. I just can't. I just can't believe that's happening. So, anyways, I'm not going to get uh, too uh, worked up on this now. So let's go back to the questions. Question from William, and thanks by the way, Josh, for all your questions. I hope they were useful answers for you. Question from William: Assuming a trader missed a breakout, would a trend follow initiate a trade in a market that had already had a significant move following the breakout? Uh, or would he, she, simple pass on the trade? What would you do, Jerry? That's a good question. I wouldn't miss the breakout, number one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. I have had situations, though, where I added a market. You know, I wanted to trade a market that I hadn't traded before. And uh, so I'm faced with that question. Is it, has it gone too far? It, recently it has, and I wait for the short, or I wait for the flat and get ready to get back long or go short, whatever. So I think, uh, or I, I could definitely see uh, kind of a, amending your rules a bit and uh, get, go ahead and getting in, taking your small loss. And it's really kind of like not the system trade. Uh, if I'm a, a day or two late, or if I'm, regardless of what happens, I trade my system almost like it's an index. And so I run a theoretical position uh, irrespective of where I actually got into the trade. So if I'm a little late for some reason, my system is going to assume I bought it on the right day and it's going to take, tell me to get out, uh, take the small loss, assuming I did the trade on that right day. Uh, so that's not exactly reality, but sometimes I think it's okay to bend reality. And, um, you know, I think if something goes 10 or 20 ATRs, Historically, I would have said, well, that's a little too far for me. That's been a nice trend so far. And then recently, I've seen some 200 and 500 ATR trades. <laughs> so maybe right. maybe 10 or 20 ATRs is not too much. But I think this is a little bit of discretion that I would exercise and just get a good game plan going, be consistent, and don't don't stress out about it. Yeah, and I think maybe, I don't know if, if if you meant the same, but I think it was Gene last week from New Zealand who asked a question a little bit about that, mainly because he missed a trade because he was asleep, the time zone difference, and then he woke up and, you know, and I think in most cases you could say, yeah, if it hasn't moved too much, just get just do the trade, just get into your system, follow your system. I do think if, uh, if there has been a big move, uh, and maybe you missed it by a couple of days and it's already moved a lot, um, then I, I would just maybe just readjust your position size. So if it went down to your stop, you wouldn't lose more than had you taken the normal entry, just not to over trade that uh, thing. And then I just wanted to um, mention that if you, re- I think, I mean, I've heard some people I respect a lot in this industry talk about this. And that is, if you ran, and maybe you've seen this as well, Jerry, if, if you ran your system 
but you, you did a backtest where you delayed the entry by a day or by two days or whatever, it's actually going to not, in the long run, is make no difference. Um, we're not that price sensitive as long-term trend followers. Um, so so anyways, yeah, I think you hopefully got an answer there you could use. Yeah, so I enjoyed that commentary of you and Rob. I wanted to disagree a bit on uh, what you guys talked about, about missing that trade and oversleeping or something. You know, I do think that um, it's okay just to have your rule and follow it. But I do think sometimes I have been in situations where you, I got a market gift and I overslept, let's say, or we missed something and we got knocked out of a trade. And before we could even do the trade, it went so far in our favor that we were like, no, we're not going to do this trade. We got lucky. So I think you should take these gifts and... Um, and maybe not be so strict about following the rule. I think it's totally fine is what I'm saying. So as long as you're sort of consistent, but honestly, look, if I the market went down and got me stopped out by one tick, and then all of a sudden, before I could even do the trade, somebody comes out from the Fed and says something, <laughs> and then I've got this big, huge winner, I'm like, no, no. I'm Thank you, market gods. I accept this this undeserving benefit that you've given me, and I'm going to play this thing out. And uh, I've had this happen to me recently where we just got lucky and the traders are like, hey, get out, let's get out. I'm like, no, 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 we have a profit here. Let's let's play with the market's money. And we ended up making a killing off of a mistake or trade or a trade that we shouldn't have even done. And honestly, it was short Russian stocks. Right. <laughs> so it was kind of funny that we did that trade. And, it, and so I just think that either is fine. You know, here I am, the stickler for the rules, but uh, I definitely think I'm not a. Well, there's, there are the rules, and then there's Jerry's rules. Let's, let's, exactly. uh, let's be clear about that. Okay, yes. cool. All right. Well, thanks for the questions, anyways, William. Then we got a couple of questions from Abe and then Funny Money. And then we go on to some of Jerry's um, very interesting uh, tweets from uh, this week. Um, Abe writes, What a great start to 2022. I also really enjoyed the Robin Wigglesworth appearance in late 2021. Thanks for keeping us entertained. I have a question regarding trading index products. Both Rich and Jerry have noted that stock indices have a less asymmetric tendency towards outlier moves than single stocks, which makes sense since indices are really wonky averages of single stocks that smooth the outlierness uh, of their constituents via aggregation. Given the phenomenon uh, and the developing outlier focus of the trend-following community, would it be wise to avoid index-based products like Dixie, Dow Jones, Bcom, Futures, etc.? As the futures markets become increasingly indecised, or indices, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, I hear rumors of a CTA index futures on the cards. How will you trade these new smoother assets? Would you trade a CTA index future as though it is uh, any other product? What about an all futures future? Okay. <laughs> I got a little confused. <laughs> all right. I'm happy to jump in on this, and then I want to hear your thoughts, yeah, Jerry. Um, I mean, I think the uh, I think you have a point, right? The point is, of course, that if you if we take uh, and aggregate a lot of these markets, you know, they're going to be less volatile, right? So, what happens with the less volatile market? Well, we tend to first of all 
trade them a little bit bigger because we size the positions inversely to the volatility. So it doesn't necessarily mean we can't make money in them, but you have to be aware of that relationship, of course. You could say that when you have a um, an aggregate of, of, say, in a stock index, you could argue that, okay, it makes it more smooth, so the risk of being stopped out willy-nilly is also a little bit less, so you may be able to hold on to the trade a little bit more. But then on the other hand, you're absolutely right that one of the things we want in terms of outlier moves is this massive explosion of directional volatility that we've seen in some of these markets uh, this week. And so I think there are pros and cons, and I have a feeling that what Jerry might also uh, agree with is it's the diversification of all of that. Why why try and predict what might be better than than you know one or the other? Why not just trade all of them uh, essentially? Um, so if there was a, a, a futures on, on on CTAs, well hell, I mean that might be a good market to trade. The thing is, I think there are other things that we want to see in any market that we want to trade, and that is the liquidity and that the fact that it's on reputable exchanges that don't start to cancel trades and stuff like that. Those are the things that are important. Um, those are my initial thoughts, Jerry. What are you? Yeah, I have to think some more about a adding a portfolio of CTAs to my portfolio. <laughs> that is something I haven't thought about, and I don't think I would do that. But I don't. Uh, I do. I don't want to trade indices on the long side. I I look at indices. I study them. I study the ETFs, especially the ETFs, and I cherry pick what I consider to be some markets, uh, stocks, or whatever from those ETFs and indices, and I trade those individually with uh, the applying the system and the position sizing on, on each individual market like I do in all the commodities, currencies, and uh, bonds. So I think that's the way to capture those outliers and maximize those outliers. But I do appreciate uh, him articulating that. He could see how that works because very seldom do I get people embracing this idea. But I think eventually, uh, you know, CTAs will come over to the dark side and trade single stocks. So just just for those people who may not have heard you explain this, why do you then prefer to trade the index on the short side and not the long side? Well, it's just a question uh, of it's two, two, two different things. One is um, you could get some outlier exposure in an index if it's short we've seen this happen when the stocks kind of all crash and the correlation goes to one that's in the data what's also in the data is the lack of outliers if you're long right okay so number two though is stocks are unique in this other sense and that is that the, their volatility as a percentage of the price is very high unlike all the other markets we trade so it makes you have a small position on a short single stock, and it sort of limits the downside potential that if the stock went to zero on a lot of the stocks in my portfolio, if I shorted them and they went to zero, it would not be an outlier trade. That is essentially the problem. So we use this ATR approach, and the ATR doesn't do us any favors on the short side of stocks because as a percentage of the price, the ATR is very high. And so we don't really have much of an opportunity, and stocks don't go to zero. And then when they do get close, they rally, and we get out. Russian stocks apparently go to zero, Jerry. There you go. There you go. 
There's always an exception to the rule, right? <laughs> now, uh, I guess also maybe we should mention, I think that's probably also one of the reasons why it's just so much easier not to have two short single stocks, I guess, compared to an index, uh, I imagine so. But uh, okay. All right. Final question from Abe. Um, he continues, Robin Wigglesworth's appearance was fascinating. Thanks for this great episode. He notes toward the end that trend-following returns have been lackluster, and this is the reason retail investors tend not to have a trend-following allocation. Nils politely pushes back on this, stating returns are quite reasonable. As of writing this, SockGen Trend Index is up about 220% since 2000, uh, so 10 and a bit percent per year. But switch on CNBC, where are the Trend Index performance numbers? Nowhere. When you type SockGen Trend Index returns into Google, what you get? A chart of SockGen stock price on Euronext Paris. It's like trend following is in the shadows. I don't see trading performance as the issue. Marketing performance, on the other hand, is an ongoing 20-year-plus problem. How do CTAs as an industry become part of the financial zeitgeist going forward? Have index providers had a role to play in throttling the industry's potential, uh, i.e. by limiting the distribution of index return data? Thanks for taking the time. So that was more of a comment, but maybe there is a question in there. I'm not sure. Um, any any thoughts? Since we don't watch CNBC, any of us, I imagine. <laughs> you know, over the years, people have do had done really well in stocks and in indices and this the movement towards low cost and indexing. So I think in the future, though, um, CTAs will continue to show the benefits of a systematic process and the, how the trend following works and all the diversification. I personally don't want returns from an index uh, because it's going to come with that possibility of 50% more drawdown. So I, I prefer whatever I can get from stocks and bonds and currencies and commodities, I'll take as long as it's wrapped up in uh, trend following, which gives me some control over my risk and puts me in a high likelihood of capturing uh, the big moves. So we're going to go through these periods where we underperform stocks, and then we're going to go through periods where we dramatically overperform, and people learn once again how important it is to have all the components of diversified trend following from a risk point of view and recently from a big profit opportunity point of view. So the, I think um, <clears throat> we probably hit a low a, a few years ago of respect and uh, People desire to invest in trend following, but from probably from from here on, it's going to be quite a bull market, I would assume, in uh, people wanting to invest in CTAs. Yeah, no, I actually agree with that, but I'm not going to go into why I think about that because that's a long explanation. But I actually think you're right on on that as well. All right, final question from Funny Money, um, and I actually don't think it's from uh, Rob, but there we are. Question for one of the shows: uh, um, Trailing stops are they intraday or managed at the close slash next day's open? I keep getting stopped out on gorgeous trends because of recent volatility, like in Brent and Palladium. Um, I think, uh, funny money, that um, for the most part, if you are uh, certainly in the in the professional uh, side of things, you would have your stop uh, working intraday, so to speak. Uh, it doesn't mean that it gets hit, but of course it, it's probably going to be triggered and then you're going to get the trade executed. Some people, I'm sure, out there for making things li life easier, they would... They would just do the trade on the on the next open uh, if they had to. And in the long run, I'm not so sure whether it makes a big difference. Some 
Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. Um, that's my guess. So that's how I see it. Any other ways of seeing it, Jerry? Oh, yeah. I think uh, Funny has got two things going on here. They're not related. He tried to make them related, but they're not. Number one is, I've done it both ways, trade intraday, um, and then I switched to trading after the close um, a few years ago, and I think they both make the same amount of money virtually on the back test. Um, one of the things that's not so scary about trading after the close is, is that on most of these markets, the open is like in 20 minutes, the new right. open. So you're not necessarily having to wait 12 hours or whatever. So um, I think when we did the back test, uh, having your trades triggered by the closing price actually made a little bit more money. And administratively, it's, it's uh, easier, of course. But the other idea he comes up with has nothing to do with that, which is he keeps getting stopped out. Right. Um, and that is because, well, you know, according to me, and I've mentioned this on the podcast already, you're just too short term. So it doesn't matter if you're doing it intraday. It doesn't matter if you're doing it on the close. You're, we're in the midst of these big trends and you're not participating. So your exit at the 20-day low, the 40-day low, the 50-day low, it's too short term. Get up in the hundreds so you can hang on to these trends. Oh, but the volatility is too high. Oh, but the give back could be too much. Whatever. I mean, do the back test. The back test says, oh, you're right. On each any, any individual trade, you may not like these results. You're going to give back too much money on this trade. But over all of the trades, over all of the data, over all of the years, this type of uh, time frame makes more money per your stop loss. You know, this is how I look at it. If you're going to risk 25 basis points, what are you going to get for it? And so the computer comes back very quickly and says, well, if that's the metric, if all I have to do is say, what do I get for my 25 basis point loss? Then this is how you should trade. But now if you're going to throw sharp at it, volatility at it, some of these more fancy ways of looking at it, that kind of go against the trend following philosophy of letting profits run then you come up with a different answer, a more complicated answer. But if you allow yourself the freedom uh, that trend following gives you, take small losses, let the profits run, and let the volatility be somewhat large, wheat, crude, the metals, in order to get these big profits, then life will be much easier and you'll gravitate towards seeing the virtues of a longer-term methodology. Yeah, no, great that you picked up on that. So I think that's uh, very important stuff. All right, so we have a one topic that I definitely want to discuss with you that you brought up, and then we've got a, a few tweets, and we'll see how many of those we get to. Um, but there was one topic that you mentioned to me um, that I thought, okay, what's going on here, Jerry? So what uh, what you wrote to me was, I'm not interested in doing any more trend-following research. And then you wrote, this could be a fun thing to discuss. And I actually think this could really be a fun thing to discuss. So what what's going on here, Jerry? Uh, yeah, I try to be uh, controversial on purpose. And uh, I just don't like uh, paying attention to back test. And I don't think it's helped me in my career. And so towards the end of my career now, I'm finally making the appropriate decision to be, and I mentioned this early in the podcast, to be very skeptical about back testing and researching, especially from a trend following point of view. Um, I don't think these markets are sort of predictable. I mean, golly, I couldn't be more right. 
if I don't say that during this period where the world is so unpredictable, we don't even know what's coming next, and we're making all kinds of money with these uh, one entry, one exit, one stop loss systems that uh, which are just outperforming anything because you're in the trend, you're not getting knocked out. And so it was like I said earlier, I like to look at the charts, see what keeps me in the trends for uh, for the sort of duration of the trend. There's not that many big trends to even scroll through on your charts. Just there's maybe 50 of all time or maybe 100. So you got to look at 50 or 100 charts. What kept me in that market? That's all I care about. That's the parameter. You know, the 100 days, the 200 days, trade everything in between. And uh, just I don't really think that tweaking and doing us, uh, you know, update the data, see see how that has changed the parameters. Yeah, I just think that's too much uh, precision and relying too much on the past, which we've seen all of these unprecedented things happening. Uh, and I just feel like multiple entry and exit, break breakout exits in a trend-following strategy has performed so well for me and uh, for many, many years that I'm, I uh, just was thinking the other day about how many things I went off, I went down some bad periods in my performance because I was paying too much attention to uh, research and relying too much on it versus just, uh, you know, what I've described so far is just figure out these parameters that they look like they keep you in the trends fairly well and don't stress out over getting it right. You know, you're going to participate in trends, you're going to give back a lot of money. And uh, that just seems, that philosophy is just what seems to work. Yeah, so so I like that a lot. And if I was going to kind of summarize it, I think what you're saying is in terms of the system, in terms of parameters, methodology, it's just going to continue the way it's now. But you will continue to find new markets to throw at it because overall what we're trying to do here is to try and find these outlier moves that can, will happen uh, in many different markets but at different times and so on and so forth. So, so I agree with all of that and and but i want to add a, a comment because i think it is important to understand i think a lot of managers probably deep down if they were asked would say yeah that's right and although we have large research departments it's quite rare that we make a large change to the system but we have them and we look at things and so on and so forth and i actually think a lot of this is also driven by the perception of investors what they expect us to be doing. They expect us to be looking at research and coming up with new ideas. And and speaking from my own personal experience, I would say, especially when you go through a tough time, there's a lot of pressure, a lot of questions about what's in the research pipeline. Couldn't you come up with something that fixes that issue and so on and so forth. And it is so difficult to explain that actually the best thing we can do for you is not do nothing because we've already proven through 30, 40, almost 50 years of, of data that we, that it works and that we shouldn't overcomplicate matters. And actually what Jerry is saying is something that really goes to the core. If you fully understand trend following, you understand that the simplicity is also what makes it robust. And so the more we try and add on to it, most likely it's going to be less robust than what we have. And therefore, we should refrain from the temptation and the pressure. And the best thing we can do for clients is really sometimes do nothing um, and just stick to what we've got. So, 
Well said. I uh, couldn't have said it better. That's perfect. There's a downside. You know, everyone kind of knows that you need to be consistent and follow your rules. I mean, that's a given. And then you get a big research project done and they say, let's change some rules. Well, wait a second. Oh, that's fine. If we if it comes from the research department, then it must be fine. No, I mean you're gonna there's a cost. I'm not against improving your system. If you're trading too short term, start trading longer term. And then you're gonna write into Niels again and say, Hey, I follow Jerry's advice. I'm trading longer term. Guess what's been working great over the last six months? My old <laughs> systems. <laughs> exactly. We've all been there. Fight the bullet, do the right thing. You you deserve a bit of a punishment for not doing the right thing. But then try your best not to change too much and get into this mentality of markets change, I need to adapt. Uh, this is a marketing gimmick from very smart people who use uh, research departments and PhDs as marketing tool. And uh, how silly would it be to say, you know, what needs a big overhaul here are the rules of this S&P index. It needs a big overhaul. Much more money traded systematically in that S&P index and anything on the planet, and no one will ever come up and say, hey, let's tweak this thing. Let's do some research. It continues to beat every discretionary manager, almost any manager, active manager on the planet. It beats CTAs most of the time recently. So no one is calling for that. It's because the performance is darn good, and it just doesn't make any sense to even advocate for such a thing. And I think in the same way, these trend-following methodologies, they're rock-solid. Uh, system one is gonna is shorter term. It's gonna have its day in the sun. System four is longer term. It'll do better sometime. Uh, but looking at recent performance and trying to go in and you oh I've uncovered this thing that I've never seen before. So I'm moving the parameter from 125 to 130. Come on, give me a break. Yeah, and I think what what to drill down the essence of that is every time you make a change to your model, there's the risk that you're gonna get it wrong. As, as Jerry says, just because it came from research, it doesn't mean that it's going to be better than what you already have. And you have to understand that. Sometimes it's okay. Sometimes you will make a change, and Jerry has done it. We've done it many times over the years. But there also comes a point where it's going to be fewer and fewer and fewer things you can do. There's only so many ways you can do trend following, and that's the beauty of it. That's the robustness of it. Anyways, so let's leave that topic for now uh, and let's jump on to some of your tweets because they were also pretty uh, juicy and solid and and uh, brought up a few um, classical stuff i would say and so and some of the tweets i uh, i i've only picked up some of the tweets uh, this morning so i may not be fully engaged in it but i the first one i i kind of sense um, the usual pet peeve here so the tweet is an exchange between jerry and our friend george on the 8th of march the international women's day by the way and um i think it's about George uh, kind of trying to, um, maybe he was trying to provoke you a little bit, Jerry, I don't know, where he's basically saying, oh, this is a great time for trend following, or look at all those great trends, but at some point, they're, gonna to, they're going to reverse and correct, and what are you going to do? Are you going to vault target? Are you going to reduce, how are you going to reduce positions? So take us into that little debate, um, what you got from it, what you, um, what you uh, left George with in terms of things to think about. Well... I just think that uh, some of these, yeah, we are going to have some retracements. We are going to uh, have some big trends and have retracements. We don't need to 
override, add some fall targeting, or worry about limit, lock limit down. There's a lot of fear mongering here. Look, if there's a lot of things going on in the markets over the past 30 and 40 years, it's all summarized in a nice back test, which I've done a lot of them. And the back test keeps coming back saying trade longer term, you're going to make more money. So um, let's, let's use math as our basis here. Uh, not our human emotions, you know, like not my emotions. I'm so afraid that I'm going to give this money back. Where the where the back test says, don't be afraid, be hopeful. And because if you're hopeful and you emphasize staying in these trends and not the fear of how much you're going to possibly give back, although you will, overall, you'll do just fine. And I think staying away from these emotional issues and letting that pollute our thinking and trying to go down this path of more of evidence in math and the back test is going to suit us so much better. Look, if every single time or a lot of the time we get these big sell-offs and if you didn't vol target, you wouldn't make very much money or the market is lock limit down uh, in this way he was describing, then the back test would say, don't trade this way. There's other better ways. Don't you understand? There's a lot of bad things going on if you have a holding period that the average trade is over a year. It doesn't say that. So that's that was my big point, is try to, uh, and there was more to it than that. Uh, we can keep going. But that, initially, that was what I was trying to say. It's There is some subjectivity with backtesting. I get that. But in my mind, I want to try to fight my human emotions and being af- afraid and fearful and be hopeful, relying upon these rules that have been uh, you know, vetted in a back test. Yeah, and also, I mean, I mean, as much as uh, I, we, I think we all know that deep down, George uh, are a big fan of trend trend following, but he does have a way to uh, to kind of get the crowd going uh, with uh, questions that might sound like that uh, there are things that he he's doubtful about trend following, and there maybe there be, but. The next tweet, I'm simply going to let you explain this one because it was essentially also from the 8th of March, maybe inspired by the fact it was, as I mentioned, the International Women's Day. But this was just a simple chart, uh, sorry, a a simple tweet, a picture of two attractive women who seemingly were admiring something and one of them said something like, or the tweet said something like, I think he's a wheat farmer. What's going on? What's going on there, Jerry? (laughs) That's pretty funny, right? And um a friend of, I think a mutual friend of ours, I, he posted that on Facebook. And so I copied it and put it on Twitter. And I tried to give him credit for it, but I didn't find his, I couldn't find his Twitter handle. And like you said, it is a couple of uh, beautiful women who are, seem to be looking across the room at a, and admiring a gentleman uh, and saying, uh, you know, we're really interested in this guy because he's a wheat farmer. <laughs> I thought it was pretty funny. And honestly, you may find this hard to believe. But this is the most liked tweet ever. Oh, wow. Me. Can you believe that? Niels, all of the work, I poured my heart out into these tweets, and I get almost 400,000 likes. <laughs> I'm sorry, 400 likes. Oh. And uh, because of this picture, that, what does that say about Twitter, me? The world. Uh, wheat, wheat. <laughs> so much fun. You never know. It's an outlier. Is, you know, you put it on, you tweet it, you have no clue what's going to happen. You're going to be surprised. Oh, so my God. That was my outlier Absolutely. tweet. Absolutely. Oh, that's funny. I did not know. I follow dad jokes <laughs> ah, as well okay. on Twitter. Uh, so, you know me, me and Rob, we're always competing for yes. 
who can be the the funniest. Yes, and you're doing a great job on both sides, I will say. Um, all right, the next one, maybe on um, obviously with a slightly different, uh, more serious background. Uh, you tweeted an article uh, from the Wall Street Journal: uh, distressed debt funds are swooping in as the wall pushes bond prices down. You wrote prices could drop further, but the risk of missing out on the rebound is greater. When it feels really scary, you still have to plan the trade and trade the plan. Don't forget, it could be a bad plan. Trend followers could end up with all of the money. What were your what was your inspiration for that one? Well, the last two sentences are mine. Don't forget, it could be a bad plan. You know, just I have a plan. Okay, that's fifty percent of it. How good is this plan? Um, and then uh, I'm just amazed at what's coming out. So many people, sophisticated investors, losing so much money simply because they were counter trend and held on to positions in ruble or stocks. And then their mentality is, oh, this is a great opportunity to buy these lows. Whereas our mentality is, this may not be the low. And just so much irresponsible risk-taking, uh, putting clients' money uh, at risk, and simply big, huge downtrends or big, huge uptrends. Nickel, you know, I'm sure that's a really smart guy who went short nickel and didn't, didn't make the margin call. I'm sure that people at uh, Blackstone who are down $17 billion in Russian investments are really smart people. But maybe a trend overlay, or maybe not being in markets that are too illiquid where you can't put a trend overlay in. But stepping in in some of these markets now and calling this low, calling this bottom, and being afraid of missing a bargain just strikes me of what a blessing. Whatever got you to this podcast and got Niels and I to believing in trend following, you need to thank whoever that was, no circumstances, and realize where, where you are in life because you have more knowledge with just by listening to these podcasts or Clubhouse or reading. If you embrace the trend following, you have more knowledge, more uh, ability to survive than it looks like a lot of people. And if these people keep it up, we're going to have all the money. It's only going to be trend followers. We're in a da we're in a dark time. We don't feel good. I love making money. We talked about this before we came on. I like the trends. I like making money. But I'm a human being. I'm a citizen of the world. And I don't like uh, sometimes what's going on, even though I'm profiting from it. But now is not the time to think about these situations as missed opportunities. You had a missed opportunity by not following the trend. Uh, repent. <laughs> because these people don't understand how much money they can lose by being counter-trend. Yeah, no. Um, something when you said that, and, and one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about um, because uh, as, as, as we've talked about a few times, people have been skeptical about trend following for years. They have tried to tell us that long-term trend following was dead many times. And in particular, when markets started to move more quickly, only short-term systems would do well and, 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 and all of that stuff. There's been so many ways people have tried to convince 
themselves and maybe some of their clients that actually this simple approach that's been working for 45, 50 years and where all the evidence points in one direction, actually we shouldn't pay attention to that. And, and then people will try and explain that as, okay, yeah, but the markets have been more stable, central banks have been very successful in managing um, you know, the world and, and all of that stuff, right? But what I'm hopeful for, um, not that it's uh, on, on a positive background, but what we've seen the last two weeks happening in Europe, um, I think what people should do is they should try and, um, well, let me put it in another way. What I worry about is that we don't have the imagination to fully comprehend the world we may be heading into in terms of how markets are going to react. I think we are conditioned and actually, I'm going to bring out an interview on the podcast very soon uh, with one of the authors, authors of the book called The Rise of Carrie, which everyone should read. Uh, the Rise of Carrie essentially explains why the environment in the last 20, 30 years in, in, in the financial markets have been rewarding investors who have done nothing other than owning stocks and bonds and where there's been a massive amount of suppressed volatility going on. And this has made it somewhat difficult from times to time for trend followers without a doubt. I think that, and like the authors, I believe that the the regime of, or the carry regime has come to an end. And I think maybe we got a glimpse of, you know, extraordinary events that can happen and that can take markets in directions we haven't seen since before the rise of Kerry, meaning the 70s and the 80s. So my proposition to people listening to us today is, what if we are going back to performance of trend followers like we saw in the 70s and the 80s? What if that was actually the world we're heading into? A little bit picking up on what Jerry said earlier, maybe this is just the beginning. And we don't have the imagination really to think that could happen but i actually think that that's one of our limitations uh and that we should force ourselves to be open to a brand new world whether it's better or worse that's not the point um but a world where markets can move in magnitudes that we have not witnessed for decades well you know you brought this up a few weeks yeah. ago and i tweeted the hell out of this you nailed it and i love how you you said it. You said it perfectly, and I quoted you. I go into you know YouTube and I do the transcript and I quote, try to quote as close as I can. And this was this word magic, and I thought, yeah, oh yeah, you're onto it. And this is so true. And you know the the thing of it is, is that someone could say, well, how could I possibly imagine this? And that's right, you can't. You can't imagine. All you can say is it could get really bad, and. I'm going to take my direction and sell that downside breakout in the S&P or the ruble because I don't know how bad it can get, but it can definitely get a lot less stable than what I'm used to recently with the Fed put and the Fed and the government. And you hit the nail on the head is that we don't have to imagine what can happen. We just have to imagine it can be a lot different and a lot worse than we've seen. And the recent history, 10 or 20 years, is not a good indication of what can happen uh, in the world. So you're 100% right. I thought that was just brilliant. And um, yeah, I do think that we just stand ready all the time to protect and profit from things that no one can predict. And we're not predicting them. We're bad at predicting. 40%, uh, 60% of the trades are, lo are losers. But that's not the equation. 
what size were those winners and what size were those losers? That's the magic. And I think, Jerry, that if anybody wants just a thread of help in terms of that, yeah, this could actually be somewhat different to what I could ever imagine, just go back 18 months. We had oil trading at negative $37. And this week we had oil trading at $130 when it was at the high. I mean, if you had said that 18 months ago, that in the next two years, we're going to see oil between minus 37 and plus 130, people would have laughed at you. They would think you're crazy, right? And nobody would obviously have any plan for making money from that unless you were rules-based and didn't have to think, right? So... Anyways, let's. Um, we're preaching to the choir, I'm sure. So, um, but anyways, let's get back to a couple of classical tweets before we wrap up. Um, and it kind of goes to uh, a lot of what we talked about uh, already. But let's do it, uh, Jerry. Um, by the way, the seventh and the eighth of March would also have been, I think, one some of your most active days on Twitter, on top of having most likes. But there we are. Uh, this one was out on the seventh. Uh, Non-classical trend following redefines losses as losing periods versus losing trades. Thus, they don't let profits run, but prefer to take small losses and small profits, i.e. trend falling plus a lot of junk. <laughs> this is just something that I can't get away from. But you know, this is what's happened over the years, Niels. I remember coming out of uh, Turtle's program and listening and reading, and what was happening was uh, taking small losses was no longer the trade, it was the day. You know, we have to have a small losing day or month or a week. And this transformation into taking small losses and letting profits run was hijacked by Sharp and uh, uh, people purporting to trade trend following, but wanting to not let profits run if that meant too much volatility uh, based upon Sharp ratio or their... their um, desire to have a low volatility and define that volatility down. So it really is an unfortunate situation because no one was really asking them to get rid of this freedom that we have to let those profits run and not be held and not be thought of negatively if you have volatility with massive open profits. But CTAs redefined all of that and said, no, it's not a small trade. It's not taking small trade losses. It's I need to clamp down on bad days. So it's return replaced trades. And so that is very unfortunate. It, it goes to the heart of what trend following is about. And the whole industry has adopted it. It's very few of us who uh, let our profits run in, in that meaningful way. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, we kind of, uh, you, you kind of laughed at it when I, when I read your tweet and like, oh, yeah, we've said that many times. But people don't realize how important it is because that's exactly right. You know, I think our industry has suffered, our, you know, investors have suffered a lot of uh, unrealized profits by, quote unquote, encouraging the industry to fit into this narrow lane where Sharp dictates all decisions in terms of how to allocate and which strategies are good and which strategies are bad. So you're absolutely spot on on that. And in, essentially, we should encourage people to say, you can do whatever you want with other strategies when you analyze them. When it comes to trend following, just don't look at it as something that has anything to do with sharp ratio, which, by the way, sharp ratio was originally developed for a portfolio, not for a single strategy. But now, of course, we use it you know, for everything, right? But 
it's it's so brilliant in the simplicity, the way you talk about it. But it's important that people understand how brilliant it is, in my opinion. Yeah, it uh, it is really it's really the heart of almost every problem or every disagreement. And uh, you know what has we talk about trend following over the past ten years? We talk about the industry over the past ten years. What has represented that industry? A lot of vol targeting. And so we're looking, how has simple trend following done? And how has no vol targeting done and letting profits run? I don't know. We don't know how it's even done. Have we uh, hurt ourselves as an industry by really getting too far away from uh, what works and this particular strategy? So you had a group of people who in their own strategy weren't practicing what they should have been practicing. Much less the rest of the world didn't like it. The CTAs really didn't like it. So uh, that's why we I just always try to encourage people. You have the tools. Uh, but if you go down that route you know, of fall and sharp, then you're in no man's land. Yeah, you better start doing more research. You need research. But I don't think it's necessary. And it's totally a self-inflicted wound uh, for each individual CTA. And, and when the markets got good again, you know, that's what came to the fore was the classic way of doing it. Uh, that just started kicking ass right around COVID and it hasn't looked back. And and you mentioned the last 20 years, right? But if, and, I, and I think we both know what happened about 20 years ago in our industry. It became institutionalized, right? That's when the institutional money came. When you and I started in this industry, there were less than five, maybe 10 billion maximum in the whole industry. And then all the money started to flood in, especially around after the uh, tech bubble where trend followers shined and, and a lot of other things didn't. And then it got confirmed by the 08, oh, crisis alpha, it works. And, uh, and, and, and so, you know, and, and so there's no one to blame here. It's the evolution, of course. But sometimes, you know, fortune favors the brave. And the brave in this case are people who are actually willing to stick to the original way of doing things and who are willing to accept that we do this for the long-term compounding effect of what we do, not because we need to fit it into a certain risk metrics that unfortunately gets adopted by lots of people, in particular in the consultancy space, because, ooh, you can't present anything that has a sharp less than 0.4. Wow. You know, so anyways, there are two more tweets I want to go through. The last one, because it's a little bit controversial, I think that's great. But before that, um, you, you also tweeted on the 6th, nature has ways of using roundabout methods to compete for survival. Be prepared to take short-term losses for long-term gains and much more advantageous positions in the future when opportunities present themselves. I think we've talked about the topic. I just wanted to read it out because the next tweet is actually quite interesting. I wonder if you want to, I don't know if you have it in front of you. There is a word there I may not be able to pronounce, but there we are. I'm going to try with my, uh, you know, with my English skills here. Anyways, the term hedge fund is a complete misnomer. I can't give you a reason the industry should exist. Hedge funds lose less in a crash and makes less in normal markets. It just makes people poorer. And then comes this, uh, I guess, pseudo-scientific, or maybe that's the word, actually. Pseudo-scientific CTA non-classical trend-following ideas makes people <laughs> poorer too. Pseudo-scientific. I never heard that one before. But anyways. Oh, the pseudo-scientific oh, pseudo I got from right. that article. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, so anyways, this is just me complaining more that somehow adding 
Sharp-like features to your trend following makes it more scientific. Right. It just makes people poorer, and it because they don't compound at as high a rate because there's this emphasis placed on uh, the volatility of big open profits. This is risk. It's not risk. The risk was I was going to risk 25 basis points, and I do, and I take a lot of 25 basis point losses. This is not risk. It's been redefined as risk because a lot of the big CTAs are in a sharp world. And that's what the clients want to hear. You know, what's funny about this article, it was about this guy Spitznagel. Oh, yeah. And, and I encourage everyone to read everything he writes in his books. And uh, he's a little bit like Howard Marks in that we don't really trade like him. But those two guys keep saying the same things that a trend follower could say, should say about predicting the future, being aware of, of outlier trades and uh, protecting capital, but letting the profits run and just being overly afraid of being on the wrong side of an outlier. Uh, so I, I love those two guys. I just tweet them so much because there's so much wisdom and it's not a trend follower, but it, but he sounds like something a trend follower should be saying so often. And he's basically saying in this tweet that these hedge funds, they're leveraged beta. They're, you know, if stocks go up, they're going to make money, but they're not prepared with currencies, commodities, or bonds, or shorts necessarily. And uh, to get that type of diversification and protection, and recently that type of profit, you're only going to get it from a CTA who is systematic and as diversified as it possibly can be. Yeah, uh, well said. Um, it is kind of interesting that people, over the years at least, gravitated more to the word hedge fund. God, I remember back in 1994 when hedge funds were doing well and CTAs were doing poorly. Some of the CTAs started to call themselves a hedge fund, but I think they got better. They came on better ideas later on, but there we are. Um, the other thing that I think is, is interesting is just how sentiment changes. And I don't know why I'm thinking of that right now, but it's just what's going on with this ARK Invest, right? Where, you know, 12 months ago, Kathy Wood was the hero, right? And giving people performance that was just crazy to the upside. And now, even if the, you know, tech stocks haven't actually dropped that much, I mean, it's just being crushed. I saw it's the ARK Innovation at 55, down from 170. I mean, it's, well, back to the point about, you know, we need to imagine things we couldn't imagine um, happening uh, not long ago, but... I think we should be open to it. What we don't need to imagine is the hard evidence of uh, performance. And uh, as of Thursday evening, Beta 50 index was up 4.51% for the month, up 7.9% for the year. The SockGen CTA index up 6.15 for the month, up 11.08 for the year. SockGen trend up 709 for the month, up 14.79 for the year now. And the short-term traders index up 1.77 plus uh, 3.56 for the year. And by the way, I actually think trend followers had, uh, CTA had a good day Friday, so the numbers probably higher as they head into the weekend. My own trend barometer, it closed at 80 yesterday, confirming this strong environment. Um, so um, we'll see if that continues. And the uh, MSCI World Index, for those who are long equities, down 4.63% in March so far, down 12.12 for the year. And the World Government Bond Index, another month of negative performance, uh, so positively correlated to equities, which is not good if you have a 60-40 um, portfolio. 
Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, if you enjoy these conversations, which we hope you do, please head over to iTunes and Spotify and rate and review um, to help more people find the podcast. Next week, I'm joined by Alan, so make sure you keep your questions coming in. It's a lot of fun when we can answer them. Info at toptradersonplot.com, and we'll do our best to... Uh, Answer them on the first uh, available time where the relevant, I should say that sometimes I do keep the questions for a few weeks because I want to find the most relevant of uh, my co-host to help me out. I think that's it. Any final thoughts, Jerry, before we wrap up? No, I have enjoyed Alan as well. And his series is very good. So I, I listened to those as well. And I think he's bringing on some allocators who are friendly to trend following. So I'm learning how they think and uh, getting some encouragement from those too. But Oh, it's been fun. Have a good weekend. Yeah, absolutely. So from Jeremy, thanks so much for listening. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.